to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Today we're taking a look at the wildfires ravaging the West Coast. And stick around after the interview. We've got something a little different. Katie Love is back with a four-part series on how rigorous science and solid sleuthing can provide grounds to make polluters pay. Even as the state of California faces its most extensive fire season on record, I was able to go to the grocery store yesterday and pick up some California-grown avocados. It's hard to imagine that while the skies on the West Coast turn red and the air fills with smoke, farm workers there continue to work, not necessarily because they're heroes or because they want to, but out of a need for income and fear of retribution from their employers. While it's true that wildfires are a natural part of ecosystems, the frequency and strength of these fires is not natural. People have died and many are in danger. So even though this is the fourth year in a row that California has seen these especially disruptive and devastating wildfires, we need to find a way to fix this because people can't keep living like this. The safest thing to do while it's this smoky in California is to stay inside, but many don't have that option, including farm workers and those who've lost their homes to the fire. To understand what we can do as the climate threats stack up, I welcome Dr. Christy Dahl back to the podcast. She's a climate scientist at the Union of Concerned Scientists, who's not only studying the wildfires, but as a resident of San Francisco, she's seeing the immediate effects firsthand. We discuss the painful decisions people are forced to make while fleeing wildfires during a pandemic, lessons we've learned from Australia's wildfires at the start of 2020, and what role climate change plays in the fire, even if a particular wildfire was started by a gender reveal party. Christy, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks so much, Colleen. It's a pleasure to be with you. Yeah, I think this is actually your, your third time on the podcast. I think that's right. Uh, and I'm, I think it may be my first talking about wildfires, though. Let's start a little bit because you're, you're in the Bay Area. Can you tell me what it's been like these past few weeks and kind of what you're seeing on the ground? I live in San Francisco, so there's no immediate threat to the city of fire. But for the past few weeks, we have been dealing with very poor air quality due to smoke from wildfires around the state. So right now, there are more than 3 million acres that have burned across California, Oregon, and Washington. So that's an area that's just slightly smaller than the state of Connecticut. Um, it's the most extensive fire season on record. And we in the Bay Area have been feeling it in terms of our air quality. And just for perspective, a healthy air quality index is something below 50. Where we are this morning is above 200. So we're in a category of air that's unhealthy just for just about everybody. And that air quality index will dictate, you know, what my family and I do on a given day. It dictates whether my kids join me for walking the dog or whether they can step into the backyard during recess for school since they're at home schooling right now. There's a real sense of confinement here in the Bay Area and a real sense of the gravity of the fires this year. And and it's not just this year. I mean, this is, you know, the third or fourth year in a row where we've had 
really extensive, really disruptive and terrifying wildfires in the state. So, so I think people are, are feeling really sad um, and grieving for the California that we've known for so long. So Christy, people who are out there that, that don't have places that they can go where they can turn on an air purifier, it seems like a really big health risk for so many people. Absolutely. I mean, they're the immediate people who are affected by fires and need to evacuate their homes and have nowhere to go. Um, they're people whose homes have been completely destroyed. Um, there are people who are suffering through power outages related to the fires. Um, so that even though they can be in their homes and they're not in danger, uh, you know, they can't be running air purifiers. And then there are people whose jobs require them to work outside. And that's perhaps the most heartbreaking of all because you know these are people like agricultural workers who are so invisible in our food system and yet are so critical to you know really the entire country having food to put on their plates. Um, so in the midst of this really choking thick smoke, they're out there harvesting, you know, they almonds and lettuce and tomatoes that are feeding the entire nation. Are they provided with any sort of protection? You know, there are some regulations in the state about exposure to wildfire for outdoor workers, just as there are for extreme heat. You know, the reality is that the safest thing to do when it's this smoky is to stay indoors. And many workers may not feel that that's an option. Typically, agricultural workers are very low-paid workers, Many of them are immigrants. Many of them are undocumented. And so there's a real fear of not working during this time, both because, you know, they need the income and, you know, there's fear of retribution on the part of their employers if they take time off. And so really the only protection that they have is face masks, which, as we know, are in short supply right now because, the kind that you need to protect yourself from wildfire smoke is an N95 mask. And that's the same kind of masks that our healthcare workers need to protect themselves from the coronavirus right now. So they're in short supply. A friend of mine posted a photograph of the, um, the air quality, and it was very orangey and very surreal looking. And um, she mentioned in her post, you know, climate change and the connection with wildfires to climate change. And Somebody responded, oh, that fire was caused by a lightning strike. And then I thought, wow, I wonder, I wonder what Christy would say. <laughs> I mean, how do you respond to something like that when people aren't making a connection at all? Yeah, it's a bit of a challenge, right? Because wildfires are a natural part of our climate system and our ecosystems out here in the West. You know, fire is actually a really important part of the ecosystem. Trees like redwoods have evolved to have this incredibly thick fire-resistant bark. And the heat from wildfires allows seeds to disperse in our forests and to allow our forests to rejuvenate themselves. So one could say the same of something like hurricanes, for example. Hurricanes are a natural part of our climate system. But climate change is one very key factor among several that's pushing fires to new extremes. So if we take a look at how that works, fires need fuel. And for wildfires, that fuel comes in the form of dry vegetation. As our climate has warmed, 
it's become easier and easier to dry out that vegetation, just like it would be easier to dry out a fresh apricot if you put it in the oven. Um, recent studies have shown that human-caused climate change is responsible for about half of the drying we've experienced in the Western US since the 70s. And it's responsible for roughly a doubling in the number of acres burned since the mid 80s. So the conditions that we're seeing today, this record-breaking heat across the globe, record-breaking fires across the West, have really been decades in the making. And that means that when we have um, a really incredible lightning storm like we did back in mid-August, the landscape is primed and ready to burn. So it's not just a lightning strike. It's a lightning strike that happens after decades of drying in California and having these really intensely hot and dry conditions. So what is typically the start of the wildfire season? So we typically start to see wildfires burning in the summer and typically the season ends sometime in November when we start to see our first rains. So the West has, rather than your typical four seasons you might see in a place like New England, we have a wet season and a dry season. So it's pretty typical in the West for it not to rain between about mid-April and mid-November, just not a drop of rain. And it's really not until we start to get those rains in the wintertime that we see an end to the fire season. But in recent years, it's hard to even say when the fire season is because we're starting to see fires burning all year round. And what we, what we have known about fires is changing so quickly. For example, firefighters often talk about how much more quickly fires are spreading in the current climate because our nights are getting warmer. And as opposed to having conditions like in the past where it would cool off at night, maybe you'd see some dew accumulating, get some dampness in the evening that would, that would tamp down on the wildfire's growth at nighttime. Now we're seeing explosive growth through the night. So it's really pushing our firefighting capabilities to their limits. How is this season shaping up in comparison to previous seasons? So this season of wildfires has been record-breaking, um, not just in California, but in Oregon and Washington as well. For some perspective on that, the largest fire in recorded history for California is currently burning. It's called the August Complex Fire. And it currently is about 750,000 acres, just enormous. The second biggest fire was only about 450,000 acres. So we're talking uh, a fire that is more than 300,000 acres larger than the last, the last record setting fire in size. So these fires are burning, they're incredibly large. Um, and because of that, it's difficult to get them under control and they will likely be burning for quite a while. And these two fires this is the largest and the second largest, and they're burning now? Of the top five largest wildfires in recorded history in California, three of them are burning right now. So wow. the first, first, third, and fourth in that top five list are all burning now. And actually, all five in that top five list have burned since December of 2017. So 
we see the records broken again and again. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. The Got Science podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, you can help us reach more people by simply sharing the podcast with your friends, coworkers, and on your social networks. Another way to help us get noticed is by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's quick and super easy. And finally, if you're on Twitter, you can come talk to us at GotScienceUCS. Now let's get back to our interview. I was reading an article in the New York Times that described what is happening as sort of a domino effect. And um, that many of the consequences are things that we don't readily think about with wildfires. Can you talk about some of these other consequences that might not be top of mind? Yes, and I think there are many. Um, you know, one of the first ones that comes to mind is the impact that burn scars have on our landscape. So a burn scar is the burned land surface that's left behind by a wildfire. So obviously they're forming in the dry season when we have the wildfires most. But as we head into the wet season, um, later on this fall and this winter, those burn scars present a really large risk for flash flooding and something called debris flows, which are basically floods where a whole bunch of sediment and rock comes along with it. So, uh, you know, it's easy to think that we'll get some relief during the winter when the rains arrive. And certainly in terms of burning fires, we will. But there's also a lot of concern about whether we'll experience this flash flooding or debris flows in places that have been affected by the fires already. Another thing that I don't think is talked about as much is the mental health aspect of living with wildfire. You know, many of the the people who lost their homes during the campfire a few years ago that destroyed the town of Paradise um, in the Sierras in California were ordered to evacuate during one of the, the wildfires that's burning right now. And that trauma of, of wondering, am I going to lose my home again? You know, how many more times can I, can I do this? It really does wear on people, understandably. So I think that as we start to really internalize what it means to live with climate change and to live with these threats year after year, people will need help coping with that just so that they can stay sane and functional um, despite all of the risks that they're facing. And then finally, one thing I'd mention is that, you know, we have uh, right now in Oregon, roughly 500,000 people are under evacuation orders in the state. And so that's 500,000 people that are trying to find safer shelter in the midst of a pandemic. So we've heard stories of people, rather than going into a shelter that they feel is too crowded, just sleeping in their cars. You know, people who are questioning whether they should go and stay with an elderly relative who lives in uh, a safer area and isn't uh, being threatened by wildfires because they don't want to expose them to 
any COVID-19 risks. So, you know, these kind of intersecting disasters play out in so many ways for everyone who's affected by these fires. What are some of the short-term and long-term solutions? In the short term, there are going to be many decisions that homeowners and communities face as they look to rebuild from this year's wildfires. Many communities in California have adopted standards for the vegetation that you can have around your house and how much of a buffer you have around your house so that if a wildfire does strike and all the vegetation around your house, it won't necessarily threaten the structure itself. We also may need to be taking a hard look at where we are living. We've seen a major influx of people into areas that we call the wildland urban interface. So these are these beautiful communities that you find in the West where you've got uh, houses developed right up against beautiful forests. And those, those zones are unfortunately the most risky when it comes to wildfires. In the long term, we need to be thinking about policies that really limit our greenhouse gas emissions. So as our emissions of CO2 and other heat trapping gases build up in the atmosphere, the consequences for wildfires will get worse and worse. So if this is truly a problem that we want to tackle in the long term, we need to be looking at reducing our emissions as quickly and as as deeply as possible. It's also true that our forest management practices have for decades contributed to increased wildfire risk. So for decades, there were policies of complete fire suppression in the West, and that allowed the undergrowth in forests to build up. And so we were now really primed to experience these big fires because there hasn't been the the natural periodic burning of that, uh, that vegetation that's closer to the ground. So we do need to be thinking about policies like controlled burns that will help to heal and rejuvenate our forests and make them less prone to the really big wildfires. Can you talk a little bit about the um, public safety power shutdowns? Sure. So many people may be surprised to learn that the vast majority of wildfires in California are are caused by people. This year is somewhat unusual that we have so many fires that were sparked by lightning. Typically, we see a lot of fires sparked by um, electric lines, as well as by like sparks from a car. And I'm sure many people have heard that a couple of the fires this year were sparked by gender reveal parties that had, you know, firecrackers that went awry. So the public safety power shutdowns that have been implemented across California um, both last year and this year are attempts by our utilities to reduce the risk of electrical lines sparking a fire. And they are instituted when conditions are particularly conducive to fire. Forests also sequester a huge amount of carbon from the atmosphere. If you think about it, a 200-year-old tree has been pulling carbon out of the atmosphere for 200 years, which is pretty incredible. And the same is true for the soils that those trees are growing in. They also retain a lot of carbon from the atmosphere. When we burn those trees, and sometimes the soil underneath them gets burned too, we release all that carbon back to the atmosphere. 
if you can stretch your mind back to January for a minute, which feels like a million years ago, um, Australia was experiencing its own horrific extensive wildfires. Since then, researchers have estimated that the fires released over 800 million tons of carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which far exceeds the country's emissions from fossil fuel use in an average year. So we do need our forests to be healthy. Uh, part of a healthy forest is some degree of fire, but we want to maintain and maximize the amount of carbon that our forests can store. Because as we saw with those Australian wildfires, so much of it can get released back into the atmosphere and uh, just contribute to further global warming. Christy, thanks so much for um, taking the time to talk to me about the wildfires. I'm sorry we're always talking about very heavy topics. You know, I think climate change is something that's on everyone's minds out here. And I, it's hard to always come onto your show and feel like I'm talking about depressing topics. But I also think that for many people, the gravity of climate change feels very far away. And for many of us here in California, it's incredibly immediate. So I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about it to people who may not be experiencing it so viscerally right now. And now it's time for a pop quiz. What do Baltimore, Boulder, Charleston, Hoboken, Honolulu, New York City, Oakland, San Francisco, and the entire states of Connecticut, Delaware, Rhode Island, and Massachusetts have in common? If you guessed that they've all filed lawsuits against fossil fuel companies, some as recently as September 2020, you are correct. But how does that work? How does a city or a state just sue a company like ExxonMobil? And why? What proof do they have that oil and gas companies are responsible for climate change affecting their local environments? Does the Union of Concerned Scientists have anything to do with this? I can give a quick answer to that last question. Yes, we do. But for the rest, it's kind of a long story, and we're going to tell it to you. I'm excited to announce that we're doing something a little different for the next several episodes. In addition to our guest expert interviews, we're bringing you a nifty four-part series on how rigorous science and solid sleuthing can provide grounds to make polluters pay. Here's Katie Love with part one. Thanks, Colleen. Before I get into climate change, ExxonMobil, or the science that can show how many inches of sea level rise are attributable to which oil and gas companies, I want to talk about cigarettes. Yes, cigarettes. I'm old enough to remember family restaurants with smoking and non-smoking sections, being handed an ashtray along with a menu at bars, and leaving certain venues with my hair smelling of so much cigarette smoke to the point that if I didn't wash my hair before going to bed, the smell would soak into my pillow. And I'm not that old. In the US, the shift from indoor smoking being common and accepted to just not being a thing anymore happened, in my opinion, decades late. After all, the link between lung cancer and smoking cigarettes was established and publicized in the early 1950s. But instead of changing their business, cigarette companies paid for extensive PR and lobbying campaigns to sow doubt about the link between lung cancer and smoking. They even paid scientists to lie that the science wasn't completely settled. Forty years later, 
statewide indoor smoking bans and other life-saving policies gained traction as it became clearer and clearer that tobacco use was so harmful, governments had to act to protect people. And a lot of that clarity came through congressional investigations and court cases. Smokers, former smokers, and their family members had been suing cigarette companies for years for compensation for the health effects of smoking. But the companies argued that smokers made personal choices, so they shouldn't be liable. This argument won suit after suit. Until documents leaked that showed cigarette companies knew their products were addictive and harmful, and that they'd promoted those disinformation campaigns to create doubt and confusion about the actual risks. That is not legal, it turns out. In 1998, tobacco companies like R.J. Reynolds and Philip Morris settled with more than 40 state attorneys general in lawsuits over consumer protection and antitrust laws. They committed to stop targeting kids with their advertising. They agreed to compensate states for the health care costs related to smoking, promising to pay more than $200 billion over 25 years. And they agreed to dissolve three of their biggest and most influential industry organizations, also known as trade associations, many of which funded front groups for tobacco lobbying. A few years later, the U.S. Department of Justice won a racketeering suit against several major tobacco companies for misleading and defrauding the public. These court cases might be a huge part of the reason why you aren't bombarded by tobacco ads and why you can no longer smoke in bars and restaurants in 38 states these days. Rich and powerful companies and executives who claim the negative effects of their products should be the responsibility of individual consumers. Companies that quietly fund front groups to advance their special interests and that spread disinformation and confusion about whether their products are actually harmful or not. Turns out that Big Tobacco has a lot in common with oil and gas companies. Fossil fuel companies operate in one of the world's largest and most profitable industries. Most of them make billions of dollars extracting and selling oil, gas, and coal. Burning these fuels produces carbon dioxide and methane, the main drivers of climate change, and that means these companies profit enormously from contributing to climate change. But we haven't always known about climate change, one might argue. How could a company be expected to pay damages if no one knew their products weren't good for us? None of us even knew climate change was quote-unquote real until very recently. Well, that's the thing. You'd think that once you realized your product was fatally dangerous to the continued existence of the planet or people's lives, that you'd stop making it. But just like big tobacco, big oil doubled down. Instead of doing the right thing, they knowingly deceived the public and policymakers about the harm their products cause for decades in an effort to block action. In fact, one of the reasons why many, many people in the U.S. didn't believe climate change was real until a few years ago, and some still don't, is because fossil fuel companies paid millions of dollars to intentionally mislead us. For decades. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This has been part one of our four-part series. I'll be back in two weeks for part two, where I'll dive deep into the receipts, the smoking gun that proves fossil fuel companies lied to us about climate change. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth. 
the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to Stand Up for Science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Dr. Christy Dahl. Our series on making polluters pay was brought to you by Katie Love. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Worth and Jiayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and stay safe, everyone. <laughs>